Hello, and welcome to the Church on the Hill podcast. If you enjoy this podcast, we invite you to join us live this Sunday at 500 Sands Drive in San Jose, California. Visit churchonthehill.com for service times and directions, and also to learn more about connecting, growing, and serving at Church on the Hill. Now let's join lead pastor Scott Simarok as he teaches at Church on the Hill. All right, so we're jumping in week two of our series on David from the Old Testament, right? And so here's what you're going to want to do. Grab your Bibles. If you don't have a Bible, either on your phone or I know they're on the chair in front of you, and grab a pen, something to write with, because you're going to write some things down. We're going to take a look at David's most famous story. You know it already, right? It's about David and Goliath. That's what we're taking a look at today. Famous story. But before we dig into the story, I mean... it's like the, the story of a legend, right? It's like the ultimate underdog story. It's a story about this teenage young man who is going to defeat a nine-foot giant. He's going to kill him. Sorry, I gave away the end of the story, but you probably already know the story, right? So I, I got to start with this question. Is it actually a true story? I mean, is Goliath and David and Goliath in this story, is it myth? Or is it reality? I mean, it feels like the story was plucked right out of a Disney movie set, right? I mean, it's like the Hebrew version of Mulan. You know what I'm talking about? And so when you look at that, you got to ask the question, like, is this just a myth that the Israelites made up to really, like, encourage the Israelite people? That it just got made up and then passed down as if it was true throughout history? Now, here's the question. Is there any evidence that this battle ever took place? Renee Schleppler is a pastor over at Twin Lakes Church in, um, in Aptos, just over the hill. He traveled to Israel, and he wanted to chase down this theory. Like, I want to take a look at the historical evidence. Like, I'm going to go to the sites where it says that David showed up, and is there any evidence that these things actually took place? So uh, I owe a lot about, of what I'm about to tell you right now to Renee and, um, and this in his book that he wrote called Chasing David. If you want to get it, it's on Amazon. It's a fantastic book. Um, David's battle with Goliath is actually recorded in 1 Samuel chapter 17. So go there. I'm going to read it to you. But as I read this, I want you to take a look uh, at this map of the Elah Valley behind me. Uh, this is the valley that is described in the opening chapter, chapter 17 of this battle. The story goes like this, verse 1. Now the Philistines gathered their forces for war and assembled at Sukkot in Judah. They pitched camp at Ephes Demim between Sukkot and Azekah. Saul and the Israelites assembled and camped in the valley of Elah and drew up their battle line to meet the Philistines. The Philistines occupied one hill and the Israelites another with the valley between them. So just take a look at that, and you can see all the sites, the Philistine camp up top there to the left, uh, the Israelite camp over here on this side with some bigger mountains surrounding them. Archaeologists have found the real campsites of the Israelites and the camp of the Philistines in the Elah Valley. Like, well, how do you know this? How do you know the difference between two camps? They're there. Obviously, if there were armies there for an extended stay of time, there's going to be artifacts left behind. In both camps, they found a large quantity of animal bones, goat bones, cow bones, lamb bones. But in one of the camps, there were no pig bones. Why? Why? Because to the Israelites, 
A pig was an unclean, unfit animal to consume, so there would be no pigs in their camp. And in one camp, it's full of all kinds of animals, and in another camp, there are no pig bones present there. Also absent from the Israelite camp, there were no clay idols found. But in the other camp, you would always take a clay idol with you, particularly when you were going to war, so that your gods might be with you. Um, in fact, in the Israelite camp, it was interesting. There was this, uh, this stone that was found with this, this inscription that read in ancient Hebrew, thou shalt not, and we know that that's a direct quote, quote from the Old Testament. The archaeological evidence says that there's, there were two camps there, one an Israelite camp and one a Philistine camp. And in this valley, the archaeological evidence says that there, there really was a battle that took place. Now, question, why are there two camps there that are on opposite sides of the valley? And why did this, this stalemate go on for 40 days? We'll read in the story that this went on for 40 days. Um, the Philistines, they had iron chariots and bronze armor, which are fantastic when you're in the flatlands of the valley, right? You're faster, you're stronger, you're more protected, and they would decimate the Israelites in the valley. But the Israelites, they didn't have any armor. They had bows and arrows. So they were in the hill country with the mountains behind them because they were, the chariots were worthless there and the Israelites could win in that kind of a battle. Now, if you're going to ask if this was a real historical event and not a fairy tale, then we got to ask this question. Who was Goliath? I mean, and what was he, was he real? Take a look at verse four. A champion named Goliath who was from Gath, came out to the Philistine camp. His height was six cubits and a span. Now, uh, cubits, here's how long a cubit is. Ready? Go like this. From here to here, that's a cubit. And for most people, that's 18 inches, approximately. I know some of you are like, I wonder if mine is longer or shorter than 18 inches, right? You're get, some of you will actually go measure this because you're like me. This morning, I was like, it, how long is mine? Just a little over 18 just a little above average, what I like to say about myself. Now, six cubits, though, six times 18 puts this man at nine feet tall, plus a span. You want to know what a span is? It's Hawaiian. Go like this. The distance between your thumb and your pinky, approximately nine inches. You can go measure that later, too, I guess. So uh, nine feet, nine inches tall. He had a bronze helmet on his head and wore a coat of scale armor of bronze weighing 5,000 shekels, approximately 125 pounds. On his legs, he wore bronze greaves and a bronze javelin was slung on his back. His spear shaft was like a weaver's rod and its iron point weighed 600 shekels, approximately 15 pounds. His shield bearer went ahead of him which is kind of comical. Like, why do you need a shield bearer when you're that big and that well protected? So a cubit, is he really over nine feet tall? Can a person actually grow to nine feet tall? Let me introduce you to Robert Wadlow, age 22, I think, in this picture. He was eight foot 11, uh, and he, was, he died in his 20s. So we don't even know what he would have grown to. You know what he died of? He died of sepsis. Uh, he was so tall that he would have braces for his legs, but he grew so fast that he didn't have enough feeling in his legs and his feet 
that his braces on his ankles rubbed it raw and created this blister that got infected. And before they knew it, he got sepsis and he died at the age of, I think, 26. Eight feet, 11 inches tall, Guinness Book of World Record right there. Can a person grow nine feet tall? Apparently, yes. Now, here's what's interesting. The average height of an Israelite in David's day was only five and a half feet tall. That they know this from skeletal remains, all right? Now, that's actually three inches shorter than the average American today. Um, now, for those of you who are a little vertically challenged, listen, you're not short. You're just an old soul. You were just born too late, right? I mean, in that day, you would have been average or even tall, right? Now, one other thought for you on this. What if he wasn't nine feet tall? What if somewhere that got changed in the text along the way? Um, let me get a little technical for you just for a minute. Uh, w- when the Bible is gathered and all the sources are looked at to say what's actually true, what was written, you'll find these variants, these things that are a little bit different. There's this thing called the Masoretic Text. It comes from 800 to 1000 AD, okay? AD, not BC, AD. Now, in those texts, it says that there are that Goliath was six cubits and one span, nine feet, nine inches tall. But the earlier texts, like the Dead Sea Scrolls that that were just unearthed less than 100 years ago, and the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament. Listen, we're getting technical this morning. This is so funny. Some of you are like, I have no idea what he's talking about. That's okay. These are older sources. And in the older sources, it reads, he was four cubits in one span, not six. What does that put him at? Six feet, nine inches tall. Now, six feet, nine, in a community of shorter people than we see today, he's still a massive individual. Now, it is interesting, though. In the text, did you read anywhere where he's called a giant? What's he referred to as? Did you catch it? There was a, find it. A champion. He's a warrior and a warrior who won. He's a large, large individual. I mean, 125 pounds of just your armor. A spear with a head that weighs 15 pounds. The the clear indication is that he's massive. I don't think it matters whether he's 6'9 or 9'9. He's a massive beast of a man. And David is not. Do you remember last week when we talked about David's brothers? Who, uh, who Samuel went to anoint as the new king. Now, he wouldn't become king until 15 years later, right? So this is, David is not the king right now. Saul is still the king. And do you remember? Saul, Samuel looked at his brothers and like, oh, surely this one. I mean, he's a big, tall guy. But then there's David. He's the runt of the family. No matter how you interpret this, the point is this. The story recorded in 1 Samuel 17 is not a myth. It's a fairy tale. The archaeological evidence and the text points to this story that really happened. So David slayed a Philistine giant named Goliath. This is important. And I think his story gives hope to all those who feel like they have a battle with a giant in their lives. And you're like, I don't have any nine foot nine people in my life. Here's what your giant is. The giant is, has the same effect on you it had on the Israelites. 
We're about to read this. The Israelites, when they looked at this giant, they were gripped by fear. You have a giant. It's whatever it is that grips you by fear. Whatever causes fear in your life so that you won't approach it, you will stay stuck at where you're at because if I do that, I'm afraid I will fail. I'm afraid this bad thing will happen. I'm afraid that this catastrophe will take place. I'm just afraid and therefore I stay away from that. That's your giant. Question, could you write down your giant? What are you afraid of? Some of you are afraid of your social sphere. Being shamed or embarrassed in public, therefore you play it safe. What? causes you fear. I would love it if you would do this because I think you're gonna get a lot out of this this morning if you do this. You identify what you're afraid of. Just write it down. I dare you. Or are you afraid to? Write it down. It's gonna help you because today we're gonna talk about this. We're gonna talk about slaying your giant. Putting your giant to death. Killing it. Putting it in your past. Verse eight, the story continues. Goliath stood and shouted to the ranks of Israel. Why do you come out and line up for battle? Am I not a Philistine? Are you not the servants of Saul? Choose a man and have him come down to me. If he is able to fight and kill me, we'll become your subjects. But if I overcome him and kill him, you will become our subjects and serve us. Then the Philistine said, this day I defy the armies of Israel. Give me a man and let us fight each other. On hearing the Philistines' words, Saul and all the Israelites were dismayed and terrified. That's the effect. They're terrified. Maybe the thing that causes you fear and dismay is maybe a sin that you're battling and you're, so, you're afraid of it. And like You're not believing that you will ever actually conquer it. I saw a post this morning on social media that a guy I know just said he had been sober eight years. That was his giant. It was alcoholism. And he slayed it. And he's been sober eight years and we just we celebrate that. I mean, maybe your giant's a person. Maybe it's actually an enemy, someone in your life that causes you fear because of abuse, bullying, intimidation, or threats. Maybe your giant is actually you. There's nothing actually right in front of you causing you to fear, but you feel, you just feel fear. You're just afraid to step out. And you're your worst critic and you're not able to overcome just the insecurities that you have. Maybe it's a challenge that you've been afraid of. Maybe you've lived in the shadows in your workplace or the shadows of your school or the shadows of your sports team, and you're just afraid to step out. You're afraid to try and accomplish something because of the fear of failure. I want to be careful of something here. If you're a giant has a name and a face, be careful. Yeah, this person, they're my giant. I hate them. They, they did this to me and they, I just want you to be careful here because we have a real enemy who seeks to steal, kill, and destroy and it is Satan, it is the devil. But oftentimes when we put a person's face to our enemy, maybe they're not evil, maybe they're just broken. Maybe they've been so broken and abused in their own life that hurt people turn around and hurt people. And so I just want to say this, be careful if, if your enemy has a name, if your giant has a face and that's the one you're fighting against. Maybe you occasionally do have to stand up to people. Maybe your giant is a legal battle 
and that person won't leave you alone. I just want you to be able to name your giant today so that you have a clear action that just says, I'm going to go slay my giant. So here's what we're going to do. The word giants, G-I-A-N-T-S. All those letters are going to represent something. Six things that we're going to learn directly from this story, from David's story about how you slay a giant. The first is this, G, here it is, it's in your notes. It's about godly courage over great fear. Look at verse 16, this is where I get this from. For 40 days, the Philistine came forward every morning and evening, and he took his stand. Verse 20, early in the morning, David left the flock in the care of a shepherd, loaded up and set out as Jesse had directed. He reached the camp as the army was going out to its battle positions, shouting the war cry. If you ever Bible open, underline this, shouting the war cry, and then go back up. For 40 days, the Philistine came forward every morning and evening and took his stand. Just imagine this, 40 days, this happens twice a day. The giant comes out and he issues these threats. And then the the funniest part about this is that the Israelite camp, they would take up their battle positions, shouting the war cry. Oh, it'd be all ready. And then Goliath would make his big statement and they'd be like, oh, not today. (laughs) I mean, how, how many times... I mean, essentially this happened 80 times, right? Because 40 days, twice a day, this would happen. Here, oh, here he comes. Let's go fight him. Oh, never mind. He's too big. It's a stalemate. Essentially, they are stuck with no one moving forward. The Israelites, they shout this war cry as if they're going to do it. What kept them at the stalemate? It was Fear. But the funny thing is, is they're no different than us. How many times have you said, I'm going to conquer this thing. I'm going to go do this thing. Just kidding. Maybe tomorrow. <laughs> I'm going to go talk to my boss. I'm going I'm to go do this thing. I mean, tomorrow. <laughs> and we just get stuck. I'm going to share with somebody the, the, the sin that I am stuck in. I'm going to say something and maybe next week. I'm going to give my life to Jesus and, and I'm going to become a Christian and maybe next Sunday. And we just get stuck because there's something that we fear. Verse 24, whenever the Israelites saw the man, they all fled from him in great fear. David, though, David's just a different kind of person. Instead of great fear, he has godly courage. Because if you're going to slay a giant, you just can't have great courage. You've got to have godly courage because your courage is based on the God that you serve. And he says this, who is this uncircumcised Philistine? I'm sorry, it has to read this way. You can't just read like, who is this uncircumcised Philistine that should defy the armies of the living God? It just doesn't work that way. David stands up and he's like, oh, he's going to taunt? Well, I've got to look at all my Israelite brothers back here who are suited up for battle and they keep going out with this war cry. And he's like, who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? Pretty brash for a teenage boy who's not even in the army. He watches sheep for a living. He doesn't even have armor. Notice though, David's courage is based on something very specific that he serves the living God. And it's not just that David serves him. It's the army of the living God. All of those men who fight for Israel, they're empowered 
by the living God. It's not just David. So David, though, he has this godly courage instead of great fear. We get to the I. David decides to investigate the rewards. This might seem a little bit odd, but King Saul, he offered a reward to anybody who'd fight Goliath. Look at verse 25. Now the Israelites had been saying, do you see how this man keeps coming out? He comes out to defy Israel. The king will give, number one, great wealth to the man who kills him. He will also give him his daughter in marriage. And number three, will exempt his family from taxes in Israel. David asked the men standing near him, uh, excuse me, what will be done for the man who kills this Philistine and removes this disgrace from Israel? He's like, great wealth, his daughter in marriage, no taxes. And David's like, I was going to kill the giant anyway, but you're going to give me those three things? Wait a minute, which daughter? I'm just, just kidding, that's not in the text. He's going to kill him anyways, but he's, he's asking this question. Is it worth the risk? Is the reward worth the risk? Now, I bring this up because of this. You do this when you think about your giant. You think risk, reward. What could it cost me? Well, it could cost me physical harm. <laughs> it could cost me death. Maybe you're a big giant in your life. You're like, it would never cost me death, right? I mean, how many of the things that we're saying, oh, I need to slay that, step out in faith on that, like, would it really kill you? It might create embarrassment among family and friends if I fail. It could be career-ending shame. It could be humiliation. And then we wonder, is the risk worth the reward? Now, here, here's what's so funny. When we think risk-reward, we always start with risk, don't we? Come on, seriously. When you think about, should I do this thing? Do you ever pause and ask this question? What's the best thing that can happen? Do you ever, we never start there. We always start with the risk. What's the worst thing that could happen? And then when we start thinking about the worst thing that could happen, we just stop right there. There's no sense in talking about the reward because if that bad thing could happen, if I could be embarrassed in front of people, there's no way I'm taking that kind of risk. Can, let's just flip that around. Stop talking about the risk and just ask this question. What's the best thing that could happen? Pause there. Did you write down a fear? If you have that, if you stepped out, faced that giant, went to slay it, what's the best thing that could happen? And just think about that. God, I, I want to talk to you about the best thing that could happen. Maybe the best thing that could happen is that that sin no longer has a grip on me. Maybe the best thing that could happen is that person no longer has power over me. Maybe the best thing that could happen is that I live with, with freedom now. David, he's seen enough. Who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? But what's interesting is David's problems, they're actually just beginning. Because David doesn't have to just face himself. He has to actually face an awful lot of discouragers in his life. G-I-A. A is this, avoid discouragers. He faces his family of discouragers. Listen to what it says, verse 28. When Eliab, David's oldest brother, heard him speaking with the men, he burned with anger at him and asked, why have you come down here? And with whom do you have, do you leave those few sheep in the wilderness? I know how conceited you are and how wicked your heart is. You came down only to watch the battle. You little brat, go home. I mean, 
Listen, some of you know this. It's a tough scenario when your family doesn't believe in you. Praise God if you have a family who calls out the best in you. But not all of you have that. There's this great verse that follows, and it's verse 29. He, meaning David, then turned away to someone else. Hey, listen, you got discouragers in your life, and they're shouting at you, yelling at you, or even whispering at you. You can't do it. Do what David did. See ya. And turn away. Can I just say this? You got to turn down the volume of discouragers in your life. Turn it down. And that might mean turning down social media. It might be turning down the news. Just stop listening at some point. If you get discouraged by that, if that creates a giant in your life. Some of us, we just got to turn against it. The problem is David not only faced his family, he also had the expert who discouraged him. Verse 32, David said to Saul, Saul's the king. By the way, you know why Saul got elected king? They looked at him like he stood head and shoulders above the rest. He's a tall, imposing character. Who should be going out to fight Goliath? Probably Saul. But Saul, this king, um, David said to Saul, verse 32, let no one lose heart on account of Philistines. Your servant will go and fight him. And Saul replies, you are not able to go out against this Philistine and fight him. You're only a young man and he has been a warrior from his youth. David, you can't do that. If I just substituted your name in there, hey, you can't do that. Maybe you have voices that come to mind. Maybe they are family members. Maybe they are coworkers. Maybe they're friends. Maybe there's no one's voice or face that comes to mind. Maybe it's just your voice that you've been telling yourself you can't because you've forgotten that you serve the living God, not a dead God, but the living God who empowers his people in the New Testament. It declares that he has not given you a spirit of timidity. He's not given you a spirit of fear. We got to turn down those, those voices. He says this in verse 37. David, this youthful young man, his enthusiasm, get this, is not based on his abilities. Listen to what he says. Verse 37. The Lord who rescued me from the paw of the lion and the paw of the bear will rescue me from the hand of this Philistine. David was a shepherd. He was on to tell the story like, yeah, I'm sitting out there with the sheep and all of a sudden this bear comes in and I kill him. This mountain lion comes in, I kill him too. And essentially goes this, I faced some giants in my life and God was with me, empowered me. I killed all of them. And this Philistine, he's gonna be just like the rest of them. Saul said to David, go and the Lord be with you. Let me be super clear. If you know what your giant is, I pray to God that your confidence is not built off of this sermon today. (laughs) I mean, maybe it'll spark something in you, but I hope that your confidence is actually in your history with God. Because if God has been with you, what are the things that he has currently seen you through? If you look at your past, yeah, I was afraid at this point and I stepped out in faith and God saw me through that. Even if it didn't turn out how you you thought, you're like, what's the worst thing that could happen to you? You're all still here, right? You didn't die from it. 
See, David's confidence was based off of the past times that God had been with him. Maybe what you need to do is reflect on God's faithfulness to you to go, what is the thing that he wants me to go slay now? The next um, point is actually the entire point of this story. G-I-A-N is this. It stands for not my power, but the Lord's battle. Um, Verse 38, then Saul dressed David in his own tunic. He put a coat of armor on him as a bronze helmet on his head. David fastened on his sword over the tunic and tried walking around because he was not used to them. I cannot go in these, he said to Saul, because I'm not used to them. So he took them off. Then he took his staff in his hand and he chose five smooth stones from the stream. He put them in the pouch in his shepherd's bag and with his sling in his hand approached the Philistine. Why five stones? Is David like not a man of faith? You just need one, right? Y'all didn't know this. Second Samuel chapter 21, not first Samuel, second chapter 21. We find out that Goliath has his, some brothers. It's true. Goliath has some brothers. So David's like, I'm not picking up one stone. You can bring Goliath. You can bring his brothers. I'm going to take them all on. It's a very loose translation of the text. Okay but I don't want you to miss it. This point is actually the entire point of the story of why the story of David and Goliath is in the text. The point is this, it ain't about the stones. It's not about the armor. It's not about the sling. It's not about the sword. It's not about any of that. You've heard this preached before, I guarantee. You've heard points like this. You can't pretend to be somebody, someone else, right? Don't put someone else's armor on, the thing that they're good at, that they're fitted for. You gotta be true to you. You gotta be the person that God created you to be. And you got, if you're good at a slingshot, then you gotta throw the stone. It's all about you and your gifting. That is not the story of David and Goliath. You've heard people say, you need to operate in your own strength. You need to have faith in yourself. It's not about the stones. It's not about the slingshot. It's not about the armor. Imagine this young man who goes out to meet this huge veteran warrior stepping onto the flats of the Elah Valley to face him. It doesn't matter what David is armed with because he is armed with the living God. That's the point of the story is that David has faith that God will save, God will rescue, and David is gonna go do the thing that he does with his slingshot and his stone. But the point of the story is that he believes in the power of God. And David at this point, imagine this young man, walks out to this valley and that giant shouting across the way, and David gives the greatest war cry speech you've ever heard. Think William Wallace, Braveheart, General MacArthur, and whatever other great warrior speeches have been made throughout history. This one tops them all. And here it is. Verse 45. David said to the Philistine, here he goes. He's about to go off. So sorry, I got to read this with a little mm -hmm, something. Here we go. You come against me with sword and a spear and a javelin? But I come against you in the name of the Lord Almighty, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defiled. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hands and I will strike you down and cut off your head. 
This very day, I will give the carcasses of the Philistine army to the birds and the wild animals. And the whole world will know that there's a God in Israel. And all those gathered here will know that it is not by sword or spear that the Lord saves, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will give all of you into our hands. Ah! You know what I'm talking about? And all the other Israelites are back here like, you go, David, good speech. And he runs to battle. Out of all the text, this is the point of the story in verse 47. For the battle is the Lord's. If God has called you to fight for something, to fight for someone, if he's called you to not tolerate something anymore, to slay a giant, it ain't even your battle. It's his. The only thing you got to do is figure out if God really wants you to fight that battle or not. I love the point of this story. The battle is the Lord's. So David then does something. He doesn't just give a good speech. He takes action. And that's what we got to do sometimes. We actually got to step out and take action. This is what it says. And the Philistine moved closer to attack him. And David ran quickly toward the battle line to meet him. Reaching into his bag and taking out a stone, he slung it and struck the Philistine in the forehead. The stone sank into his forehead and he fell face down on the ground. The text goes on to say that David ran to him, cut off his head with his own sword. See, at some point, if you're going to slay your giant, you got to do something. It's not about believing the right things only. You got to act. Can I just be real straight? All your Bible studies are worthless unless it leads to the action of following Jesus. Because if it's just knowledge, you're just creating a great grand speech for yourself at some moment. And great grand speeches don't do it unless they're followed up by action. And so I'd ask you this, the fear thing you wrote down, the giant that you're facing, what is the action that God is calling you to? Maybe it's wait and see what God does, but maybe he's telling you to do something about it. And maybe it's time for you to act and not just create a great speech in your head. Here's what I think is amazing. All of the Israelites knew the story about how God saved Israel from their past. Okay, they're all there on the battlefield, right? All these men, all these Israelite men, when they look back over their history and their past, they knew all the stories. Uh, they knew the stories about how Israel was saved from famine. God saved them. How God saved Israel then from Egypt, and then how God saved Israel from their time in the desert, and then how God saved Israel from all of their enemies when they went into the promised land. All of the soldiers there could quote to you, Joshua 1.9, be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid or discouraged for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. All of them knew it, but only David ran forward. Don't quote to me a verse unless you're ready to take action and do something about it. David's courage though, here's what's so fantastic. It becomes contagious. Giants. G-I-A-N-T, and then the S. It strengthens others. Verse 51, halfway through. When the Philistines saw that their hero was dead, they turned and ran. 
Then the men of Israel and Judah surged forward with a shout and pursued the Philistines. And a great victory was won that day. One courageous person can have a profound effect on the community around them. Your courage can inspire people to follow Jesus. Two quick examples, baptisms. When people get baptized, they're declaring their story about following Jesus in front of everybody else. And I believe this, it happens every time. Someone says, you know what? I need to be baptized. They come up to us after the service says, you know what? I need to be baptized. Why not last week? Why didn't they come up last week? Like, you know, I need to be baptized. If you need to be baptized last week or this week, you should have been baptized last week. Like, what changed? I saw somebody else have the courage to do it. Second thing that reminds me of is this Wednesday, we gather together for what we call our end of season celebration night. So this Wednesday, we're going to come in this room. We're going to have dinner together. And we're going to invite people to share stories about what God has been doing. You know why we do that? We want to be a church that tells the story of what it is that God's doing. Why? So it can give courage to others. And maybe God's been doing something great this season in your life. Can I invite you to do this? Send it to me. Just tell us what it is that God has been doing in your life because your story may give someone else courage. So we're going to wrap this whole thing up with these two questions right here. Here we go. What's your giant? If you don't know, you can't fight. Do you have a giant? It is something that causes you fear. The second question is this. What action is God inviting you to take? If you're not a Christian, maybe the action he's inviting you to take is that you would cross this line of faith and become a Christian. Some of you, listen, I've been around here for 21 and a half years, right? I know you. Some of you are your followers of Christ. I know your stories. But I also know that some of you, you got some fear in your life. So what is the thing that God is inviting you to do? My hope is this. May God give you wisdom to know what he's inviting you to do. May God give you the awareness in your own life so that you can turn down the voices of discouragement, even if it's your own voice. May God give you courage to start that thing that he's wanted you to start. Maybe it's a ministry or getting involved in a cause, but you just haven't. May God give you clarity on how he wants you to step out to maybe even divert the direction of your career to something that you might contribute to a cause in a more kingdom-oriented way. Maybe it is you becoming more generous and investing in God's kingdom. I don't know. Maybe God needs to give you the stamina and the endurance to continue and not give up on the thing that he has already called you to. May God give you faith to leave behind the giants of sin that keep shouting at you. May God give you trust in him that no matter how big your giant may appear, No matter how loud he shouts in your face, no matter how many days or years he's tormented you, know this, the reign of your giant is over because you serve the living God. So take action, my friend. Stand up to your giants because the Holy Spirit of God lives in you, ready to empower you to live with him and for him. Slay your giants. Bow our heads and pray. Lord, I think that there's some folks in this room who want to move from fear 
to freedom. God, I pray that you would make that path clear for them today. Lord, I pray that as people would read this story this week, that they wouldn't just take my word for it, but that they would dig into 1 Samuel 17 as they do that, that you would clarify and speak to, that they might hear your voice about how to move from fear to freedom. Thanks for this reminder. In this small but mighty man of David, the example he is to us, I pray we would follow the parts of his story that you make clear that are godly and empower us to live for you in a world that's, God, it's kind of tough to live for you at times. Empower us, God. And we pray this in the mighty name of Jesus, the Savior of the world, the Son of the living God. We pray it in his name. And everybody said,